I don't know if I should give any kind of trigger warning on those or not. Any young people here? Uh, okay, then I will take that and run with it. <laughs> and I want to thank uh, Valerie as well for that uh, deeply ambivalent introduction. Um, the, uh, my wife, yes, it's true, is, is here to follow up on whatever it is I'm about to say on Desire and Tantra. Uh, my daughters know just enough about Tantra and me to steer really clear of that, so they're home sleeping. They won't. It's <laughs> the last thing they want to hear their dad talk about. Um, I, I do feel if if you are new or you have no idea who I am, and you, there's no reason that you should, um, I, I do feel like I should again just say one word about my bio, and I'm I'm thinking I should add a line to it because I completely understand if you're sitting there yet again thinking why is the business ethics professor at Grand Valley talking about the things I talk about, which is in the last recent, like neuroscience and psilocybin and now Tantra. It's like, what, what do they have, like classes in tantric business, you know, or something? It's like the, our students go to work for the Tantra department at Meyer and Amway, you know. It's like, what are those sales numbers on Tantra this month, though? <laughs> so um, my background actually is, uh, I, it, my graduate work is in um, comparative religious ethics with a focus on Buddhism and Christianity. And I have both an academic and personal interest in Buddhism, starting with what's called mainstream or Vipassana Buddhism, and then making my way through and spending many, many years as a somewhat slow and dim-witted acolyte of various Tibetan teachers in what's called the Vajrayana uh, tradition. So when I'm talking about the, that today, that's where I'm, I'm coming from. Um, wonderful meditation. Uh, kind of really sets up a lot of these dualities and non-dualities that Tantra will, will get to. But Valerie mentioned this is part two of a, of a talk. Yeah, um, they invited me out in July, six months ago, uh, to talk about it. So I hope you've all done your homework, you've gone back, you've reviewed the first talk. You remember where we left off on, on that one? That uh, I was saying something about, yeah, I'd worked my way through uh, literature and, and poetry and religion and uh, philosophy and still was struggling with the notion of desire and obviously that changes 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and now 60s. I turned 65 in October. I know, it's hard to believe. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I, I don't think of myself as susceptible to these things, but, but wrong again. Um, 65 is such a signifier in this culture, right? It's such a marker. Social Security and Medicare and retirement and, you know, thanks for playing, but you're kind of old and you're kind of creepy and it's time for you to go, and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I, I am not going, <laughs> but, um, but it did make me pause for a moment. Okay, what's the nature of desire? What do I really want now? And that for a philosopher, that, of course, mushrooms into the question of, well, what do we all really want? You know, what, what do we want? How does that change? How does that transform? And one of the things that I, I am attracted to uh, about Buddhism is that in the three major schools, I'm going to simplify a lot of things today just because of the, the time, and I'll try to avoid a lot of the terminology, but maybe I'll ask you to do something I haven't asked you to do before. If I start talking about notions like emptiness or non-duality, 
and you go, man, I, I see you checking your phones and looking back at the clock. <laughs> it's like, um, I, go ahead and say, look, could you just maybe, you know, clarify what you mean by that? And I'll say, no, I had not a chance in hell. Um, <laughs> and then I'll just go on, but it'll feel like it's interactive and you're involved. In the, uh, that's great. But anyway, the 65 things. So what do we want? What do we all really want? Uh, and there are lots of candidates for that, right? And, and C3 is a great example of the kinds of things people might want, social justice and a sustainable world and communion with others and greater love and compassion. And uh, we were talking this morning, you know, all kinds of candidates for notions of what a good life is, could be, should be. Um, and in that, it's not unusual to circle back and, and compare yourself now with where you were or what you were doing uh, and what you wanted, and the difference between what you say you want and what you're actually doing, right, and what you're actually pursuing. And that's a good check. And Tantra, which, as we'll get into here in a second, is a pretty good way of helping you do battle with yourself. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But I was talking about the three major schools of, of Buddhism and the way they approach things. And I, I was introduced to this a long time ago, and I think it's a useful way to think about it. So what gets called now mainstream, used to get called Theravada, but it meant little vehicle. The folks who practiced Theravada weren't thrilled about that, like being put in this diminutive category. Um, so mainstream Buddhism is, has a, has a, it's I think useful to think of it as a kind of taming of the mind. So when you first get introduced to the practices, and like I did, you, you know, you're struggling with desire, you're struggling with what you want, you're struggling with what, what's useful to do in life, and you get introduced to Buddhism or somebody who says they're a Buddhist, and there's something appealing or attractive about that. And one of the first things they tell you is, well, life is basically pervasive unsatisfactoriness, you have monkey mind, you have no control over anything, and we have at least an approach to that if you want to check it out. So I took myself off at a relatively young age uh, to the Berry Center in uh, Western Massachusetts. And the, the technique there is, oh, hi, glad to see you. And that's the last thing they say to you for three days. Right? And then you sit down and you shut up and you meditate. And the idea is you, you don't, we don't really have much good or certainly much conscious control over the thoughts that arise, the impulses that arise. You know? And we're, we think we are who we are and presenting ourselves in a, in a conscious and intentional way. But in fact, we're driven by all kinds of things that we were unconscious of or have very little control over. And so you sit there for three days in the cross-legged position, or if you're over 6'4", you sit on a bench, um, and you try to get some sense of using breath and other uh, meditational and mantra techniques. How do you begin to examine, control, uh, analyze, and come to make peace with your own mind, right? and begin to, to settle it down so that you can actually attend to the things you say you want to attend to? So that's one of the first steps, no matter the tradition you're in. It's like, how do you actually pay attention? And you'll be shocked to hear this. Um, it's getting worse, not better. <laughs> um, the introduction of phones has not helped that particular attentional and intentional strategies. So that's a struggle that we're all facing now. And, and I do, you know, I'm susceptible to it too. And it's like, I don't, when I was a kid, <laughs> I love that phrase. <laughs> All right. we, in Detroit, we had three stations, right? 
and they did not have little banners running. There was only one thing on the screen, and you just watched it, and you either paid attention or you didn't, right? And now, of course, you all know what it's like. And the, the fight for attentionality and intentionality seems one of the great fights of the 21st century to me. And Buddhism, I think, has a number of techniques that, that can, can help. The second in the Mahayana tradition is the training of the mind. Okay, you can sit still long enough to pay some attention to things. Um, here are the sutras. Here are some of the teachings. Here are some of the deeper meanings of that. Here's some of the commentary on those things. Uh, it's, it's time for you to start learning in the truly, you know, sort of normal educative sense uh, what it means to talk about things like non-duality, sorry, emptiness, um, what it means to be, cultivate bodhi, what they call bodhicitta, become a bodhisattva, I mean, whatever your particular flavor of Buddhism is, and become familiar with the great body of, of literature that the Buddhists have left. Now, this is interesting, too, because in Christianity, you might think, those of you coming from that tradition, it's like, you know, it's a, depending upon your version of the Bible, it's 1,100 pages or so of, of text, right? That's a huge canon to try to get through, different languages from different times. Uh, in the Buddhist canon, it's like this. And I once asked, or somebody, I was in a room where somebody once asked a Buddhist teacher, he said, well, how do you master that? I mean, how do you begin to incorporate and internalize all that? And he laughed, he said, makes it really hard to be dogmatic. <laughs> <laughs> which is one of my favorite answers of all time. <laughs> um, and then this, this last one, which we'll, um, we'll talk about today, which is Tantra comes out of India, ancient uh, sixth century from the sixth to the 11th is when it was really cultivated. And it's a, it can mean any number of things um, to weave together different strands, to um, overcome um, negative afflictions, to begin to develop a sense of union with all the disparate parts of our own psychological being, or in a more literal sense, um, overcoming divisiveness between male, female, good, evil, um, uh, purity, impurity, those kinds of things. And I've handed out this strange looking, um, oh, you might hold it up. because we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what you do when you do Tantra, especially took hold in Tibet um, for various reasons. They cultivated it and developed it in ways that have turned it into both art and they would claim science. And one of the ways to think about Tantra is it's for folks who are a little bit either impatient or already primed to go from zero to 60. So you got a sense for your own karmic ripening your own sense of your, the very strong intention or very strong motivation to become uh, a more quote unquote enlightened being. You really have a strong sense of desire to serve, be of service. You wanna really wrestle directly and almost desperately with your negative afflictions, the greed, the anger, other things that you might be, that you know, plague us all. Um, Tantra might be for you. And this is, seems to me an incredibly generous way to look at this. I once heard the Dalai Lama say, well, of course it's terrible that you know, the Chinese came in and we had this Tibetan diaspora and you know, we've, we've lost our homeland, essentially. He said, but on the other hand, he said, maybe, maybe there's something good there for the rest of the world in that 
we were a bit selfish. We were keeping all these particular insights and practices to ourselves, uh, and maybe it's time. This is a karmic ripening of our own to be able to share some of these with the rest of the world. Um, which I don't know about you, but if my homeland had been completely overrun by people seeking to exterminate me, I'm not sure that would have been my first response. <laughs> so, so good for him. Okay, so the Tibetan Plateau is fairly arid. Um, it's, the colors are an amazing kind of azure blue in the sky and the white-capped Himalayas. Uh, but other than that, it's kind of a gray, desolate plain. And so the contrast when you're traveling through, for those of you who've been there, you know, between that sort of arid, endless plateau and then coming across a Tibetan monastery uh, is really, really striking. The few that are left or if you're in other parts of the, the world. Um, and so they developed, coming out of, again, ancient Indian practices, um, caricatures or characters, if you like, of our own psychic energies. These are re referred to as deities or yidams, and the notion is something like, um, like this. And that th the one you have in, in your hand is called Yamantaka, the slayer of death. Now, one of the things you might want to address as you get older, I may or may not be speaking from personal experience here, 65 being a marker, is, oh my God, for the first time in my life, it occurs to me, it's just possible, maybe, that I might not live forever. <laughs> right? That's, it's a completely intellectual notion until all of a sudden the US government says, and, and by the way, the crematorium down the street starts sending you literature saying, have you thought about, you know? <laughs> What's going to happen to you? And you, know, you better talk with your loved ones, don't you think? I mean, frankly, we don't like the look of you. It's like, how do you, you don't even know me? It's like, <laughs> so, so, you you are attempting to address, like other therapies have, right, and other traditions have, very deep seated, very habitual, and very powerful psychic psychological forces within yourself. So, are Tibetans traditionally taught to take all this literally? Yes and no. I mean, as you move through the practice, you are encouraged to think of it in much more psychological slash spiritual terms than there's actual some deity. Because it would be weird if you were a relatively well-educated person like myself to go from one tradition that's full of iconography that ends up not making a lot of sense to you and to something that's even a wilder, stranger iconography <laughs> and thinking, okay, you know, um, I apparently have a desperate need for strange cartoon-like figures in my life uh, who tell wild and crazy and oftentimes not believable stories. So you show up at the retreat or the, the, the monastery or the, the center, the Dharma Center, and there's usually a Tibetan in residence. And they're very friendly and very nice and, and welcoming. Uh, and you get handed a packet, what's called a sadhana, it's either long form or short form. In, in my case, the last one I did with the Yamantaka was about uh, 40 pages or so, a transliteration of the Tibetan and Sanskrit. And characters like this, Yamantaka, slayer of death, all right? What's the point of being there for these eight days in this intense tantric meditation? Well, it's to overcome your fear of death. <laughs> now. It's really hard, I think, probably to ultimately know if it was successful, you know, until the push comes to shove. But it seems to me always useful to at least practice or prepare 
for these kinds of things. One definition that I heard of that was given for religion when I was in graduate school was preparation for death. What else could religion be other than preparation for death? Uh, which is a way of also, of course, uh, preparing to fully live. So you get there, and the first thing you do is go through an initiation process, uh, which is not like hazing, though it can feel like it. Um, and that is you do agree, because intentionality is so important, to take this stuff seriously. Um, that we're going to be doing some depth psychological work, some very, very intense uh, mindfulness practices, visualization practices, and that you are taking refuge in the Buddha from whom these uh, teachings ultimately come from in, in the Vajrayana tradition, in the Sangha, the community of people that you're with, um, and in the Dharma, in, in the teachings themselves. So, <coughs> excuse me, you, you sit there and you do some basic opening meditation, sort of Vipassana, get your breath right, do, you know, sort of put yourself in, in the position to intend these things. And then what the sadhana does with both words and this visual tech, the, the picture here, is in these eight days, what you're going to do is come to know and understand everything there is to know symbolically about the picture in front of you. Uh, what everything means, why it's there, what its purpose is. And you are going to construct that in your mind and then deconstruct it, and then reconstruct it as yourself. So the point of a lot of tantric practices, and certainly the Yamantaka and a lot of the others, is um, sort of to hearken back to an old, both, it's a saying both in Hebrew and in Hinduism, um, thou art that. That at the end of the day, the indivisibility between the psychological energies, the potentialities, the possibilities represented, by this Yamantaka, the slayer of death, is something that you as a human being possess. And if you come to understand uh, how all of these things work together, what the symbols are, <clears throat> you can accomplish something like this Bodhisattva is said, has said to accomplish. So what you, what you do by, starting, by way of starting is, um, like I said, go through all the various symbols that are, that are there and then you're in the midst of a battle with yourself. Because visualization is absolute key to this. And can you concentrate and can you visualize things uh, over a period of time where you begin to feel the power of those negative afflictions, those negative psychological traits and characteristics that we all carry with us. In this case, they actually encourage you to bring up things that you hate, things that you're angry about. Right? They want you to use that energy. Everything is about transformation. Everything in Tantra is about transforming from one particular kind of orientation, usually negative, or at least has negative consequences for you, or karmically, to something that's positive. From anger to patience. Right? From hatred to love. And we'll get into non-duality in here in just a second, and that'll be a lot of fun. So, then, you begin to visualize. Now, now try, we'll do it, make it a little interactive. And for those of you who've done this sort of thing, um, don't cheat, don't tell your neighbor what the secret is. But it's, it's, it's an indication of perhaps whether a tantric path is suitable or, or um, might be something that would be useful to you. Close your eyes for a second, if you would. All right, and bring all of your concentration 
to your throat. So, so just, you just want to sit there and attend to that. Now, basic starting point visualization practice, um, shoot a blue ray out of your throat into the room and have it ultimately color the entire room. If you're successful at that, congratulations, you're on your way. <laughs> if that's a struggle, um, <clears throat> there are other ways to start. But the Yamantaka sits on a uh, moon disk. There's a sun disk behind. These are rays of what are called pristine awareness around. Uh, there is a buffalo head. Um, they are thought to be wrathful incarnations of otherwise benign bodhisattvas. A bodhisattva is a great or great-souled, great-minded being who is, has gone on his or her own journey, spiritual journey, and found the causes, a deep insight into the nature of suffering, an awareness of how reality is actually constructed, and in that has lost the dread, anxiety, and judgment that most of us carry around, and therefore can be present to the rest of us who are struggling. Right. And you, I said this this morning in the pre-talk, you, you sometimes hear in popular Buddhism, it's like, oh, a, a bodhisattva, this great being who's very compassionate and very wise, uh, they hang around uh, postponing their own enlightenment uh, to help other people stop being you know, so miserable. It's not a postponement of enlightenment. You, you can only do what they do being enlightened. <laughs> what they mean is that they you know, don't like check out to Mount Meru, go sit up in the heavens somewhere and just hang out in their own bliss. The whole point of practicing this, the purpose, we were talking about the purpose of life uh, this morning, because I love to start uh, at nine o'clock in the morning talking about the meaning and purpose of life. <laughs> but it's, it was great, it was a great conversation. And the idea is, you know, uh, ultimately, to the extent you're buying the Buddhist diagnosis that life is this dukkha, this pervasive unsatisfactoriness. Things never really work out quite the way we want. And even if you do have a really charmed life, boom, guess what happens when you're 65, you know, or 85, sorry, or 95? You know, it still comes to an end, right in the midst of your enjoyment of it. Things never seem to quite work out exactly the way you had hoped or wanted to. That's the cause of our suffering one of them, this, this notion of impermanence and our maladaptation to impermanence. What's the other one? Or two, we don't really understand how reality is constructed. Well, that's, we can be forgiven for that. It's like it's hard to know how reality is constructed, right, at the subatomic level and all that. From, but from the Buddhist philosophical point of view, what they think we get wrong is ascribing a kind of essentialism, essential qualities to things that don't actually have them, right? So in other words, the, one of the classic examples is this notion of I. There's a Michaelness here. And in most other traditions, including the Hindu, this is not in the Dharma tradition, um, that Michaelness is the thing that's real about me, and that will take different forms over different lifetimes, but still there is a soul there that will carry on. Whether the Abrahamic traditions or, or um, it's, not, it's not in the Dharma, Hinduism. Um, Buddhists uh, broke with, with all of those. And they break with all of those by saying, you know, you can look for it, and you can ascribe it, and you can impute it, but it ain't there, and you're not going to find it. And to this extent, we're all sort of clinging to something like that. Person, object, ideology, I mean, you name it. 
and ascribing a kind of separate, independent reality to those things, we're going to continue to find ourselves in this pervasive unsatisfactoriness level. All right. So what does emptiness mean? And I, this is also one of my pet peeves. You know, I hear, again, in popular Buddhism, it's, everything is empty. You know, everything is void. There is nothing. It's not what they mean. <laughs> and students come to me, it's, you know, it's like, it's like I'm, I, you know, I felt the nothingness. It's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> what, what you did was you got a bad sort of conceptual presentation of that. What they mean by this, and I, I couldn't be, I hope, sort of adamant about this, is they mean no thingness, right? It's not nothingness. It's there is no ultimate independent thingness. We're all dependent on certain kinds of conditions, consciousnesses, words. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious when you think about it, right? It's like we're just dependent and interdependent in all sorts of ways. Nobody gets through anything or builds or constructs anything without a lot of help and interdependence. To the extent that we cling to that notion of um, in independence, um, we continue to, to suffer. So how does Tantra help with that? Well, one of the ways is this notion of non-duality, and this we'll get into. Now, some of you might have come this morning just think, hope, and I haven't even gotten to it yet, and you're thinking, man, I woke up and I got dressed and I took a shower to hear about tantric sex. Not the rest of this stuff. It's like, Tantra, where is the sex, man? Um, and it's, you know, um, I've thrown off the constraints of my restrictive past tradition. I've joined C3, an open community, I want to hear about tantric sex. Come on. <laughs> so, okay, here, here it is in a nutshell. <laughs> um, so you'll see, if you look carefully at the image, and I'm sorry there aren't enough copies for everybody, you see that a Yamantaka, the person who's staring back at you, that you would become in the visualization practice, uh, is in consort with uh, Vajravaleka, who is the feminine in this case, uh, and they are in, and I, I love this term, in Tibetan it, it, it's known as the yab-yum um, position. It's like, oh, works for me. It's like, yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the eight, 19th century Christian mis missionaries go into, to, to engage in a little bashing, sorry, but it's just kind of funny, go into, you know, India and Tibet to, to um, convert everybody. And they come back, you know, <laughs> confronted with this kind of, of imagery and all the teachings that go around it, and they say, oh my God, this is just, oh, this is the most degenerate, immoral tradition. I said, you should see this stuff. I mean, you shouldn't see this stuff. You know, it's just awful. It's like, it's like there's nothing but just like orgiastic sex cult stuff. And they said it like it was a bad thing, you know? So, <laughs> so sorry, I couldn't resist that one. Um, the, not unlike the Greek, traditions and, and Hebrew as well, the, um, the feminine is wisdom, is the wisdom piece of this. And wisdom in, in this particular practice is this deep, and I would say not so much intellectual, but intuitive. This is why you got to get on your cushion and really kind of meditate, and why a lot of people don't stick with it. Um, this kind of coming in from the side notion that what they're saying about this construction of reality, this interdependence of things, and impermanence that's implied in that, really is the way that things are constructed. We don't act as if that's true. If you intuitively get a sense of that, internalize it, it will profoundly change your outlook 
on, on life. The wisdom of, or sorry, the union of that kind of wisdom then is a precursor to the development of compassion. It's very difficult to feel real or true compassion, so the Buddhists claim, with even to yourself until you come to understand what the true causes of suffering are. Well, I'm compassionate towards you. Why? Well, because you're suffering. Well, why am I suffering? I don't know. You just look like you're suffering. And it's terrible. That's empathy or sympathy. You know, it's, it's nothing to be scoffed at. But if you're actually going to be of use to somebody, uh, it's helpful to know what it is to address in terms of their worldview, their, their construct of things, and your own that uh, will begin to, to change that around. And so uh, back to the experiential, there I am. Um, eight days in upstate New York, the Namgyal Monastery for this particular one. And I'm raised as a skeptic. You know, I'm, I'm doing this Buddhist stuff because I've tried everything else. <laughs> you know, it's, like there's got to be something. And they're so kind and they're so welcoming and they're so encouraging about this practice. And I am having some limited success visualizing myself as this great soul slayer of, of death, even though there's a part of me that thinks, you know, this is a little strange for a grown person to be doing. Um, and then the fourth night that I'm there, there's a kind of click. You know, you've probably all had some kind of aha moment of one kind or another in some tradition or another, or walking through the woods or in partnership. And it goes to this representation of this union between wisdom and compassion. And it, it really is ecstatic, right, in the Greek sense, out of oneself, no longer oneself. What's the whole point of a lot of what I've heard at C3 over the years and probably what I've said <laughs> is, you know, the ego is the obstacle, right? I mean, that's pretty much common cliche, but it, we get in our own way an awful lot. So the techniques, and in this case, tantra techniques are the most powerful ones I'm aware of, that can get you to an ecstatic, out of myself, ego diminishing position that help, helped in, at least me in some cases realize, not intellectually but intuitively, oh, oh, there is something beyond seeing the world just in dual terms, purity, impurity. I'm always comparing something if I'm, doing, if I'm thinking dualistically. Right? I want to live a pure, holy life. Well, what does that mean? It means I'm obsessed with what's impure and unholy. I'm <laughs> thinking about that half of the time. How do I get beyond that? The intuitive, instructive, almost trance-like meditative postures of the Tantra were a way for me to finally see, oh, there is a way to transform desire, a desire that I was trapped in, into a desire for something like, as imperfect as it definitely is, a life that could be directed beyond my own ego. And so I'll see, we're getting on time. I can go on on this one, sorry. <laughs> but my, my recommendation, the reason I want to do part two in the, in the Tantra uh, and to talk about it a little bit is there are lots of powerful techniques, therapies. Um, you've heard me talk, some of you have heard me talk about uh, psilocybin, which I'm also a big fan of in terms of transformative behavior. What, what encourages me about this, whether it's, you know, whatever you're, chosen path might, might be, is that we as human beings have developed two, three, four, 10, 12 real practical and consequential ways to get beyond our normal constricting ego. That seems to me, as they used to say in my church, the great good news of today. So 
Thanks for your time. <laughs>